Welcome to episode 37 of the Neuro Network. Today, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Michael Kintress, neurologist and host of the Neurotransmitters podcast. In this episode, we talk about medical education, overcoming the fear that comes along with learning neuroscience and translating that into neurology. We also talk about the translational spectrum between benchtop neuroscience and forming clinical neurology and how clinical neurology can inform what needs to be studied in benchtop neuroscience. So if you're interested in the brain, how people that are treating the brain are trained and how we treat the brain, stay tuned. Dr. Michael Kentris, thanks for coming hey. on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, I, oh, the pleasure's all mine. I, I appreciate you taking time out of your, your busy schedule. I know uh, sometimes booking guests is not always the easiest <laughs> thing, which you know firsthand, I assume. Absolutely true. You know, scheduling yeah. is always the biggest hurdle. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason, you know, that I, I wanted to bring you on here, I enjoy listening to to some of your, your episodes on the Neurotransmitters podcast. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I have a, a deep appreciation for anyone that is uh, especially promoting scientific education because sometimes not only scientific education, but medical education in general, too. I know it's always sort of a dynamic landscape when it comes to curriculum through medical school and what works best. And, you know, do we just give lectures or do we do, uh, you know, integrative sessions or now they're moving to sort of case based discussions and it's always sort of this evolving platform and to very to see much you, yeah. uh, keep up with some of that post medical school, I think is is pretty cool. So, anyways, but besides that uh, little quick fanboy thing going on, you know, <laughs> no, no, what? please continue. Yeah, yeah, just just keep going, right? <laughs> so, so why don't you tell us a little bit? So, you're you're a, a clinical neurologist, right? Yes, yeah. So, so as you said, right? Uh, you know, I went to medical school. I'm a I'm a DO for those who aren't familiar. It's an osteopathic medical school, which pretty much the same, except we do kind of some hands-on physical therapy type training, um, which to be honest, a lot of DOs don't really use in practice unless they're in primary care or pediatrics very much. And uh, But otherwise, the medical training at that stage is all the same. Then we go into residency. So I did a neurology residency for four years, and then I did a clinical neurophysiology fellowship after that. And then I, I was, you know, doing some academic, you know, kind of at a teaching program for a few years. And then we moved uh, to be closer to family, to be closer to my to my wife's family. And so I'm at a smaller community teaching program. And it, you know, was partially kind of the impetus for some of what I, why, why I started podcasting was I'm realizing, hey, there's a lot of primary care physicians out there in the country. And a lot of them aren't really getting like great neurology instruction. So what if I just did a little piece? Because there's lots of good stuff focused internally to the specialty. You know, uh, I do some work with Continuum, which is kind of our, our continuing medical education journal and things like that. But, um, and that's like great, but it's super in-depth, right? More depth than probably someone would want if they're not seeing these reconditions on a regular basis. So, but there's not really that much aimed towards the primary care or the general medical community from a neurology perspective. So I was looking and, you know, with, I, I would say, you know, greater and lesser degrees of success, uh, trying to, uh, bridge that gap a little bit. Yeah. Which is, I think that's cool. And especially I, 
I, I do. I, I enjoy, you know, so, so Maddie, my, my significant other, she's, uh, in her last year of DO school Fine. and, uh, at, at Des Moines and, uh, seeing the, some of the, the DO education, I kind of actually enjoyed cause, so I did my PhD at an allopathic medical school at the medical college of Wisconsin. Fine. And so we, we did a lot of, you know, for the physiology program, which is where I was in, uh, we did essentially the medical school coursework, and then when they went to go do the rotations, we did our, you know, we really dove into the research, if you will. And so it was, it's kind of cool to see, you know, through through her journey and through that schooling, the the slight differences. I mean, there's a majority of it's pretty much the same, but I did kind of enjoy somewhat of the the holistic education approach, if you will, of sort of looking at a patient centered based education model. Um, and saying, you know, hey, what's what's the problem, and how do we actually deal with it in a patient? Which was, which was kind of cool from from the get go. I think I when I went through, I think I was the last cohort, at least of of my group that went through of the traditional um, curriculum where it was here's biochemistry, here's molecular genetics, here's you know whatever the courses might be, virology, and here's your multiple choice tests, and then you finish it, and then mind dump, move on to the next, and uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> and then right after I moved into to postdoc, then I, they sort of switched the, the curriculum a bit to do a lot more case-based discussions and, and move into that stuff. But besides that fact, that, you know, that's just a, a little bit of kind of where I saw some of the, the differences in the education platform when it came to that. But specifically with neurology and neuroscience, I think that is where it's a, an interesting one. And, and especially because doing neuroscience research it's always been kind of a this you know you're at an intersectional place where a lot of my work tries to be translational as much as possible i have a deep uh i guess understanding of, of why i think doing translational science ultimately is sort of the reason that we're doing it and so having that translational implication from the inception of the projects is helpful not only for driving the research questions but also you know actually making your research have an impact rather than just putting out a paper and hoping someone picks it up. But, but when it comes to, you know, neurology, and that's where I, I, uh, think it's interesting. We've had some of our, our students that have went on and, and done, uh, neurology, uh, because they got their, you know, firsthand experience in neuroscience within the lab. Um, but as a, as a, a clinician, that's, uh, that focuses in on neurology, how do you view sort of that, that um, connection between, let's say, benchtop neuroscience itself and studying action potentials and ion channels, and then translating it into clinical neurology. So, it's it's highly variable uh, depending on kind of what your practice looks like. So, you know, probably similar to to you, I was I was one of those nerdy kids uh, who had like the three hundred and one electronics kit growing up, and um, you know, in, in college, I, I got more into electric guitar, and but I couldn't afford like fancy effects pedals. So I started like learning how to solder and populating circuit boards and stuff like that, and that kind of building uh, stuff. So when I got into neurology residency, right? So I've always liked electricity, is kind of what I'm driving at. Uh, <laughs> I but, just ordered a, a new thing yeah. of, uh, you know, the, the new Raspberry Pi that came out, yeah, and, and then a yes. couple of Arduino boards. So yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> Um, 
but uh, but yeah, I, I haven't gotten into any of that, that programming. I've like I've I've looked around, but I haven't I haven't taken the plunge. You know, yeah, I haven't had the time to devote to, to well, that. Well, now now AI can yeah. do it for you. You know, <laughs> that's true. That's you true. Just have to have Good the point. idea. <laughs> there was off topic. There was a guitar pedal that recently came out. Some European company entirely designed and programmed by AI. Really? There was a, there was a video that came out about it recently. Uh, anyway, yeah, but. Well, I had, uh, I had, uh, I I made a automatic treat dispenser for my dog, you know, and I had the idea, okay, if he, if he gets a snout near an ultrasonic sensor, you know, within two centimeters, it'll open it up. But I made it conditionally active on the light being on. And so he has to push a button on the other side of the room, which activates the light. He gets the snout, he gets the treat. And so I had that idea. And so I just, you know, I built the little circuit and then I just typed into Chat GPT, I said, this is what I wanted to do. Can you write me the code for it to program? I ran it on a just just so Ar- cool. Arduino and first try, yeah. just effortless. It was crazy. Anyways. That is wild. It's it's a you know brave new world. Yeah. Um, but to your original question, yeah. Uh how that how that translates, like like you said, that basic science piece. Uh, you know, my particular interest was in clinical neurophysiology. So it is the specifically the application of that into the clinical sphere. So Initially, it kind of, it was like realizing like EEG, right? You know, electroencephalograms for those who aren't familiar. We kind of use it specifically for identifying people who are at risk for seizures or different types of epileptic disorders and things like that. But, um, you know, a lot of the signal processing, you know, so, you know, I don't come from a particularly uh, robust math background, but you start learning about like fast Fourier transformations and, you know, like RF signal processing, which it carries over a lot of things from like the old RC circuits historically. So you got like high pass filters, low pass filters. So all these different things that you kind of learn about. And then, uh, you know, I did my, my fellowship at Vanderbilt in uh, epilepsy. You know, it was technically neurophysiology, but it was like 80% epilepsy. And so we're doing like intracranial electrode placements for these pre-surgical uh, epilepsy evaluations, you know, like, can we find a seizure focus? that is amenable to surgical removal and would help the patient um, get better seizure control. And so you will implant these like in different networks, um, you know, like the classic one being like your, you know, your temporal lobe network where you do like the, you know, parts of the insula, the anterior temporal lobe, hippocampus, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so you're looking to see where's the spread, where's the propagation, you know, you're looking at these again, right, real time uh, data and you're looking at, you know, like these fast, you know, uh, like, like, you know, uh, like buzzes, essentially beta buzz. So these really high frequency waveforms that you don't see like on routine scalp based EEG. And so it's the correlation to all of this. And it's kind of, uh, you know, an area of a lot of ongoing research where they're doing a lot of machine learning type analysis off of data from these patients and seeing like how, because one of the things, yeah, there are so many, and that's that's one of the beautiful things about, I think, the translational aspect in neuroscience is that there's so much we still don't know, that it's uh, it is just a, like almost endless frontier. But uh, they're looking at why do some people, when we think we have like in epilepsy specifically, we think we've resected the area that is causing the seizure propagation, but some of these patients, the seizures continue. Well, why does some continue and some don't? And so they're looking like, are we seeing kind of fingerprints on these like other networks, like that are spreading beyond um, 
uh, the kind of a theory, which you, you might be familiar with from like mouse models, like called kindling, right? Where maybe you have the initial, like maybe there's something like a bit of scar tissue or what have you in one area. But if the per- person has had seizures for a prolonged period of time, maybe it can cause this uh, essentially self-propagation, right? Uh, this oh, network sure. efficiency, if you will. And so there's this, all this evaluation going into that and you know similar things going on with like different movement disorders like Parkinson's and deep brain stimulators. So all of these uh, kinds of things, which, right, I'm not a physicist. I'm not even a neuroscientist. Uh, and so I need people to to research these and say like, well, this is the best algorithm, like modulating this network, modulating you know this uh, this nucleus of the thalamus. That's going to give us the best bang for the buck. Um, and so, in that neuroscience clinical neurology uh, translation, I think it's I think it's immensely important, and I think that's on all fronts of neurology, uh, not just of my own little neurophysiology backyard. Um, but like neurodegenerative diseases, um, you know, which, you know, <laughs> whether you're uh, yeah. lukewarm on the uh, amyloid therapies or, oh, yeah. <laughs> or more in favor, you know, uh, it's encouraging to see that people are developing things, whether or not it's in the right direction, I think is a different question. But yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, there is just so much that is happening so fast in the neuroscience space. Um, that wouldn't be possible without the support from people like yourself doing this translational research. So I think I think people like you are absolutely essential. <laughs> yeah, just uh, poking brains in the lab and seeing what happens. No. It, is, that, it, it is interesting, sometimes. you know, and, and I'd be curious as your your take, you know, as dealing with brains, you know, and like the nice thing about in in the lab is that we can take the brains out and we can get sort of very, you know, if we can get sort of very intricate and very invasive types of, of measurements and sort of not to say that, the, you know, because we have our own regulatory boards that that manage what we do. But let's just say that the risk perhaps is is slightly less. Right. Because, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a, the best way to word it, I guess. It's not less, but the, you know, the the consequence to the patient may be less. Um, but when it comes to, you know, a lot of the research somewhat lately has been kind of in, in neuroscience, at least that I see in the fields, especially, uh, you know, we focus mainly in the brainstem um, areas, um, but a lot of obviously epilepsy stuff is important to prevent it from propagating down to, to the brainstem areas. Um, with the advances of now sort of these large-scale network dynamics rather than individual single cell. And so sort of this view of the brain as not necessarily like a bunch of discrete individual regions that are all having their own function, but rather you sort of have this this ever-expanding and contracting series of networks of networks. And like you said, maybe resecting one area might not be efficacious because now it's propagated and resulted in some sort of plasticity in a network downstream that you're just sort of the epilepsies or, or the, the, the kindling, I guess, of the neurons is sort yeah. of just like migrating around. And so you can get rid of one piece, but it's still moving around. And, uh, you know, how does, how does now integrating some of that focus in on, you know, how you treat different conditions of, let's say, malignancy of uh, excitability of the neurons, I guess, if if we generalize uh, epilepsy, I guess. Yeah. So, so again, right, 
without getting too into the weeds, little, little system of focal onset mode of epilepsy, whatever that cause may be. But, um, but yeah, it's unfortunately, right. We, we don't have therapies that are, that are that tailored per se, right. We have theories in as much as, um, you know, some anti-seizure medications target a little bit more of like, you know, different, uh, glutamatergic pathways like, uh, anti-canate or, uh, AMPA type receptors, but those haven't necessarily been shown to like reduce kindling or things like that. Um, and certainly we don't, you know, most drug studies are, I'm sure you're aware, designed this way as to not necessarily show like superiority, but just non-inferiority. Yeah. yeah. Um, little, uh, trick, trick of the pharmaceutical industry, <laughs> but, uh, but essentially like, you know, we've got like 30 plus anti-seizure medications on the market and a lot of them aren't necessarily superior to one another. So you're looking at specific indications, um, in terms of the side effect profile. So, you know, like topiramate, for example, is, uh, broad spectrum, right? Works for focal and generalized epilepsy, uh, can cause a little bit of weight loss. Also is effective for migraine headaches can increase your risk for kidney stones. So you kind of got to look like maybe this patient needs to lose a little weight, maybe, you know, but you got to make sure, right? They don't have a history of kidney stones or things like that. That would predispose them to some, you know, potentially serious complications. And similarly, right, each one has its own unique, you know, safety profile and side effect profile. And so while we would like to think, you know, we've got these designer drugs, uh, and in some cases, some diseases, yes, but uh, epilepsy, unfortunately, is one of those ones where it's so heterogeneous in terms of cause that um, we don't really have that kind of granularity yet. Um, so, yeah, that's unfortunate, but uh, that's the reality on the ground. Yeah. Well, it, it was interesting in, um, in some fact is our, you know, my, my latest research study that came out like a month ago um, was looking at fentanyl and morphine and, and we were, we were, you know, the original idea was that we were trying to come up with some central modulators of brainstem respiratory network um, mm -hmm. excitability changes so that we can sort of modulate the state of the respiratory network such that it doesn't shut off with the opioids, uh, more or less. And we were able to do that in vitro very easily because we can, we can actually just modulate the excitability state. We can just, you know, throw the potassium up to eight millimolar, no problem. But yeah, you know, in a in patient, that's not so, not so easy. And it's, uh, you know, but anyways, we were, you know, we were doing a lot of the studies with sort of very targeted, like Damgo, which is a synthetic opioid that's used in research a lot. But, you know, we, we moved to a more translational portion of the study and I said, okay, hey, you know, what happens when we actually use fentanyl? Because that's sort of what we're need to be focusing on a little bit more. Not only that, let's use the whole animal because we got to figure out, you know, what happens. And, and, you know, lo and behold, we found that when you gave the opioid, the airways closed off really tightly. And so we could modulate all the central drive that we wanted to reverse the suppression. But if the airways are closed off, you're still not breathing. So it's uh, created a bit of a issue, but it, it, but it sort of highlighted that need of bringing back some of that to see what the effects are across all different networks rather than just a single isolated spectrum. And in and to bring it into the the question that I was going to ask you, which you already partially asked, but you know, not to beat a dead horse, but uh, with the with the advent of a lot of like let's say the papers that have come out, and I've certainly done it as well, of like single channel modulation of one region of the brain with one one genetic 
makeup of cell types and uh, you see that and you say, okay, I have some sort of study that highlighted one specific type of neuron that expresses a single genetic factor that may or may not be unique to it. And we isolated one ion channel on there and we can look at how modulating its activity can change the excitability of these eight neurons. And uh, when you, let's say, take a paper like that, and you know, there's a lot of them that are being put out and it's, it's really great stuff, but from a clinician standpoint, I guess, does it become difficult sometimes when, a, when much of the literature comes in in that form to try to put these ideas together to understand tangible therapies. And, you know, another way to put it is I, I had a lot of pilot studies where I was using tetraethylammonium, which is a nonspecific potassium channel antagonist, and it worked great for reversing central respiratory suppression. The problem is, is that you can't use that as a broad spectrum treatment because you're going to instantly go into a seizure. And so like all broad, like everywhere, <laughs> you know? And so when, when you're scouring the literature and putting together these things, is there like a, a strategy that sort of, I don't know, thins the, the herd or sort of, uh, gives better holistic ideas into how to put these things together? So at least as far as, uh, yes and no, I guess is the, is the short answer. Yeah. It's a hard but, question. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I would say, you know, we kind of in the medical literature, right. We kind of start like our ground level or it's like case, a case report, right. It's like, I had this weird thing happen. I tried this other weird thing because I was out of options. Right. A lot, a lot of these things are kind of born of desperation almost where it's like, I'm out of ideas. So let's look at some like in vitro or like, we think the physiology works this way based off of what we know about, you know, function. So theoretically, would this work, right? And then, I mean, there's been plenty of negative, you know, clinical trials based off of just such thinking. So, so sometimes you will see things like that. And uh, the problem in neurology sometimes is that you are dealing with fairly, more so than in other specialties, I would think, fairly rare diseases. So your numbers aren't going to be as robust at a population level for, for many studies. Like I remember one paper I read when I was a fellow and it was, uh, it was something like 40, 40 ish patients with progressive myoclonic epilepsy, right? It's just, you know, progressive genetic disorder. And like, oh, that's a, that's a lot of patients in that study, you know, with that specific diagnosis. Like that's like, that was, I think that's one of the biggest ones that have been like published. Yeah. But it's like 40 some patients. So, you know, certainly not like the. You know, two thousand or so that we would want for like a robust stroke trial, or you know, tens of thousands for like blood pressure medications or things like that, uh, to show us like without a question of a doubt, this is a beneficial intervention for these people. So, so in those settings, uh, we do fall back on our understanding of the physiology and proposed mechanisms, as long as we aren't causing more harm. Then, you know, like if the, if the person's going to die, if we don't do anything, then a lot of times you kind of like, well, we can try this. It shouldn't hurt anything and maybe it'll help. So sometimes you do wind up in situations like that. Uh, for instance, in, in epilepsy care, we have about roughly one third of people who won't respond to 
medical therapy alone. And, you know, they'll wind up on multiple medications. So there's a principle we like to call rational polypharmacy. So, and it's, it's exactly what you're talking about, right? Like we'll pick, you know, we'll pick a medication that's a sodium modulator. We'll pick another one that maybe has a little more GABA and then maybe another one that's a little bit more NMDA focused or, you know, some combination of different mechanisms with the idea that we're approaching it from these different neuromodulatory angles. And again, right, this isn't something that has like double blind studies to back it up, um, but it's kind of a philosophy that is posed by experts in the field. So, so that is kind of how things go sometimes where you don't have the data to back up a certain practice or to say like, this is best practices. Um, and so that's, that is a challenging place to be in. And I would say it's not uncommon that we, we do find ourselves in that situation. Um, whether, you know, patient says like, I don't want to take this medication. So you have to think of another one or insurance tells you like, we're not going to cover this medication that you think would be better. And so cost becomes prohibitive. So you wind up, you know, like we've got our idealized situation, but then there's also the, uh, the practical implementation when, you know, real people's lives get mixed into it and it's messy. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. I, you know, one of the, the best experiences I had in my training was I, I spent a couple weeks in the, uh, pediatric ICU um, and, um, it was it was fascinating to see when you're rounding on the patients and especially in that sort of a situation, uh, you're very much in just like you described where, OK, we have a unique situation here. This is an end of one type of scenario. And so we have to go back to the science to figure out how we can manage it because there's no sort of standard of treatment. And uh, it's been cool also, you know, being exposed to the neurosurgery grand rounds here um, is that it's a similar type of approach, but it's more neuroscience based rather than physiology based, you know, which was the other one. And I almost, I, I always said some of the intensivists were by far some of the best physiologists I've ever met in my entire life, you, you know, like just and bar none. I wouldn't, I would agree with you, right? Because almost every day they're having to be like, yeah. well, you know, this is another unique situation. You know, they probably say that a dozen times a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they have like practical experience, but you know, what, what was fascinating too, is that with that, you have to have an enormous amount of background in education of the actual basic mechanisms of how neuroscience physiology or neurophysiology is, you know, we say in, in how that works. And I know, you know, one of the, the things that you talk about, especially is, uh, you know, the neurophobia, I think is the, the term that you yeah. use, which I, which I kind of like. And so could you talk a little bit about, you know, what it is and how, how, it becomes to be sort of a phenomenon and how mm-hmm. it can be preventative or, or, you know, ways to prevent it. So that way, when you do end up in a situation where now you have to rely on the basic science and the understanding of implementing it, where now it sort of is, is integrated within how it changes the care. Yeah. So, uh, I think it was coined by, uh, Ralph Josefowitz, who's a neurologist. I forget exactly which institute he's somewhere up in the Northeast, but he's, he coined it back in the nineties. And uh, basically, it's just the fear of the, the neural sciences, I believe is the phrasing. Um, and it's like, uh, it's, it is exactly that. It's that translation of like, you know, we learn the neuroanatomy, right? We know, you know, where Broca's areas are, you know, how the spinal cord controls sensory and motor function. Um, but then like cross applying that, I have someone sitting in front of me with, with weakness or with confusion or some constellation of symptoms, 
how do I assess this person and come to a reasonable theory and proceed with an investigation and treatment? And so that uh, that cross over from the book learning to the hands-on, now I have to make decisions based off of what I've learned. Um, and that's uh, that's where a lot of people struggle. And to be fair, it, it can be challenging. You know, um, I remember one of my instructors saying, and I think you could apply this to any part of medicine practice in general, is that uh, you know everything is it's just a very humbling career. Uh, and I add the caveat because you're wrong so often. But uh, <laughs> and so so it's interesting. Uh, one thing that we know, right? Um, you know, people pursuing like a bachelor's in neuroscience is becoming you know, more common than it was, say, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But you see these people matriculate into medical school. And I actually was fortunate enough to encounter someone in our local medical school. And she, she, she had a bachelor's in neuroscience. And we were, I was kind of involved with like the, uh, the first year, like kind of mentor coaching program uh, this past year. And I asked her like, well, you know, I see you have a bachelor's in neuroscience. Uh, did you ever, she was considering dermatology, which, you know, maybe a better lifestyle, but like, have you, did you ever consider like neurology or psychiatry or, uh, even neurosurgery? And she was like, not, no, I never really did. And I'm heartened because she actually came and did a clinical rotation with me and really enjoyed it. And so I'm like, well, maybe, you know, I think, I think part of it is that neurology does have this reputation of being even now, right, that there aren't treatments for things that even if I do diagnose this, what do I do with it? And while there are still plenty of diseases like that, um, we're seeing, I think, this more and more rapid advancement in in therapies, you know, from multiple sclerosis to epilepsy to even Alzheimer's. Uh, so I, I think this is, a, you know, a, a fascinating time to be in neurology and uh, you wind up, and I think everyone does this in medicine where, you know, someone will say like, oh, I want to do general surgery or I want to do emergency medicine or, you know, it's like, you know, you say that to someone who's not in the specialty and they kind of poo-poo it. Um, but uh, that's always the thing, right? Never, never believe the negative thing someone says about a specialty unless they're in that specialty. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> that goes for anything I say too. But, <laughs> uh, but I, I think that really is the, that really is the thing is that a lot of people don't get adequate exposure. They don't get that hands-on training to say like, you know, like, hey, look at this this finding as we're seeing this patient. Like, do you see how they do, you know, this thing with their arm, you know, it kind of turns this way or that way or whatever. And that means, that means this, right? And so we're able to translate that. Like, this is a subtle, like, this is the way the nervous system acts, you know, in real life. And being able to translate these very subtle things um, into clinical decision making, uh, I think one important thing is that one of my attendees always said, you know, what is the company that it keeps? Like for any single finding, like you know, this reflex is a little more brisk in the left leg, uh, or you know, maybe there's just a touch of facial drooper, you know. But is there anything else? You know, is it just this one little thing? Is that clinically significant? Um, and that's the thing that comes with experience is trying, you know, gauging it. Like once you've seen like, this is normal, this is normal, this is normal. Like, well, this one's just a little bit beyond that. 
I better investigate that more. And so that's that's the hard part about medicine in general. And neurology, I would say specifically, because a lot of it is like looking at the way people move. Um, you know, there's there's all these uh, old neurologists uh, floating around, a lot of them on Twitter as well, where they'll talk about uh, in the olden days, you'd take your class to like the train station and watch people walk to and fro and be like, and I, I'm guilty of this too. Like I was at the airport earlier this week and, uh, you know, I had some uh, driver pick me up and, you know, he had a very prominent you know, resting tremor. And I was worried. It's like, you know, he's grabbing my bag. I'm like, I got it. I got it. You know, but uh, I asked him like, you know, how's, um, I asked him like, you know, do you, do you have Parkinson's disease? And he says, yes. I'm like, oh, it's like, you know, how's, how's it going? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, because it seemed like he was having some pretty bad wearing off. Um, but, uh, but it's one of those things where you can't help once you know what you're looking for. Like you just look across a crowd and be like, that person's arm isn't swinging as good as equally as the other one. And it's one of those things where, you know, I forget what the effect is called. I mean, you remember, but like, like once you're aware of something, you see it everywhere. Oh yeah. 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 And it's it's just one of those things. Like you're kind of like uh, part of this like secret society now where it's like, you can, you watch people around and be like, something's off with that person. You're not quite sure what per se, you know, and you you know, for the sake of, you know, politeness, you you don't always go poking around. Yeah, but uh, but you wonder to yourself, like, ah, you know, that that person looks like they might have had a stroke uh, a while back, or um, you know, different different sorts of things like that. And it's it's that classic, you know, the the being observant. It's a trained set of skills, but anyone can be trained in it. And it's just, I think, fascinating uh, to be able to just look at someone and be like, hmm. like I, I saw someone in the hospital just uh, just this last month, and. You know, I just noticed like, and he's not blinking enough, you know, uh, which, you know, it's, I always feel weird, right? It's like, you know, it's yeah. like, you always look like that. Um, no, but you found you, out you, he had eye lube on. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, uh, you know, it turns out he'd been on some, some antipsychotics. I was like, well, is this just drug induced Parkinsonism or is this Parkinson's disease? Um, and so now you got to fuss around with that. And the whole reason why we were there was to see like, he's been having falls. So now you start to wonder, like, just is that piece of it? Is this something else? And so taking all these things and putting them together and uh, I find the diagnostic process to be incredibly fascinating and uh, very fulfilling, you know, not the ones where you can't get to a diagnosis. Those ones are very frustrating. Yeah. Uh, Like a piece of food stuck in your teeth. You just, you keep worrying at it until you can uh, get it loose. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think that that chase that thrill of of figuring things out is uh is very satisfying the the puzzles that come along with it exactly exactly now do you think with uh with that sort of translational aspect of or you know within within uh baked into the education to sort of make it fun about these puzzles that you're trying to solve and especially when it comes to the 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 neuroscience or the the neurology with the neurophobia, if you will. And, and certainly I'm sure there's some of that with any medical specialty the first time that you have to now apply your basic science into a, a living, breathing patient. Um, but, but with, what's the best way to say? So like, like I'm thinking like with physiology, like when you take physiology, which is like a basis of a lot of uh, many specialties, right? And the whole time that you're learning physiology, you're sort of getting that application as you're 
learning it right away. Okay, here's blood pressure. It goes up, it goes down. You know, here's some medications that make it go up and down in a bunch of different ways. And so you sort of always have that clinical application right readily at, at hand. But I noticed like sometimes with the neuroscience and especially the neuroscience and the way that it's presented in sometimes within the medical uh, curriculum is that it's a lot of basic, here's neurons, here's action potentials, here's ion channels, and here's synaptogenesis and all that kind of stuff. And it's almost like, it's almost like studying the properties of electricity when you're studying an EKG, right? And so like that you learn all about electricity, but you never quite get to putting it into an EKG, if you will, you know, if, if we were to translate, I mean, obviously you do EKGs with, uh, with, with physiology, but I'm, you know, Perhaps it's a bad example, <laughs> but it's like, no, I, you, it's I like, you learned all, yeah, yeah, you like, it's like you learned all of this stuff about electricity, but it never quite got to the actual, right. how it moves through the paddles in order to give you information about the heart, you know, and for neuroscience, you learn about all these different, cha uh, these channel modulators and how it increases sodium, potassium, chloride, all these different things that move in and out of the cells and you see action potential after action potential after action potential. But it never quite gets to the point of, all right, we have a, a slight droop in the face, which then translates back to this nuclei, which then has a change in excitability due to this specific right. potassium channel being mutated, which then goes to affect the electricity. And so, like, there's sort of that last step that's not necessarily put put in there. And I and I'm not familiar necessarily with once you get into like the third and fourth year specialty classes how much that's emphasized but i assume it's it's sort of part of the reason the neurophobia exists is maybe it's not emphasized yeah. enough yeah i i think i think you're right about that in as much as you do spend in medical school right like you learn embryology you learn you know about different deep right not just for neurons but like for you know cardiac cells as well right so you're learning all of these uh very basic principles which is not bad to know, but uh, and I, I've seen people publishing about this in the medical, like the medical education literature recently, is like is the breadth of medical knowledge too much to fit into four years if we focus as much on on these basic principles that may or may not have as much clinical relevance, uh, which you know. Certainly, that makes a lot of people anxious uh, to hear, right? When we start talking about fundamental shifts to the way we educate our future physician, uh, you know, population. And I don't, I don't pretend to know what the right answer is, but it's it's certainly one of those things where uh, there's at least a shift away from like memorizing, you know, vast reams of facts, right? When, right, all of us have a, a super ultra powerful computer in our pocket where we can look up nearly any fact. Um, is that as important as understanding, say, basic physiologic principles and how those interact with one another? Um, working more from like a conceptual framework rather than like a, a vast encyclopedic knowledge. I think that's probably true to an extent. Um, knowing what is and isn't possible, certainly you can kind of extrapolate from that um, once you have like the basic frameworks in place. But as far as it like, neurophobia itself goes, I think there's a, a couple pieces to it. Um, and there's been some research in this as well, looking at uh, what we call like the, the neurology pipeline from uh, kind of like undergrad through residency application. And 
one piece is that a lot of uh, neuroscience classes in the preclinical years, in the first two years of medical school, are taught by neuroscientists primarily. And so, you know, they're probably going to be better anatomists than I'm going to be. Um, but will the clinical application be there, right? Because I think it's important to remember why are we training these people? I mean, mm -hmm. they're being trained to be clinicians ultimately. So I think that's one one piece is, and again, you know, I've I've heard many good things about many, uh, you know, PhD driven neuroscience education programs. So I'm not knocking them just as a matter of course. Um, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I think the second piece is, uh, if you look across the country, it's something somewhere between twenty and thirty percent of medical schools don't have neurology as a clerkship, which is a clerkship for those who aren't familiar is a mandatory rotation that they have to do at some point in their third or fourth year of medical school. And then add to that some places that do have a medical clerkship or a neurology clerkship, it's, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the third year. It can be in the fourth year. So by the end of third year, most medical students are, have already decided what specialty they're going into. So, we've kind of lost the opportunity to capture the interest of those people who either don't have the opportunity to do a clinical neurology rotation or don't do it until later in their medical school, at which point they've already decided what they plan to do. So, so I think that's kind of the, the tricky part is how do we capture the interest of people, right? Because a lot of people do find neurosciences and neurology interesting, right? I mean, like how, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but how can't you, right? Yeah, everybody sees. Yeah. Um, I whenever mean, I, I say that was, I do, yeah. whenever I yeah. say that I do neuroscience yeah. and physiology, uh, yeah. you know, I, they jump on the the neuroscience, and then I say, well, yeah, a lot of my, what I do is physiology too. And they, well, I don't care about that. Let me let me talk about the right <laughs> the brain, like the, it's interconnected. And, yeah, <laughs> but I forget if it's it was New England Journal or uh, JAMA, but it was something like the the case report series. I said something like. 30% of them are neurology cases, right? These, and they're like these challenging cases. Yeah. Um, like So like a third of the presentations are neurology. And there's obviously lots of other specialties. So I think that speaks to the innate interest and the you know myriad manifestations that, that people can present with, right? When we think about like oh, behavioral changes and all these things, um, I was I was talking with a, a neurologist on on my podcast, uh, Dr. Ethan Meltzer. Um, who, yeah, he has a lovely little textbook uh, called "How to Think Like a Neurologist," which I think is uh, a great little study book for there are people in train stations. Yeah, <laughs> right. And uh, but he was like, "What other organ has three specialties devoted to its study?" Right? We've got neurology, psychiatry, and neurosurgery. You know, everybody else two at most. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and he, he, uh, forgot where to attribute this quote. So I'm going to attribute it to him, but it's like, what other organ do you evaluate by asking it questions about itself? Right. Like, <laughs> it how is are you interesting. yeah, right. It's, it's very meta. Um, and I loved it. Uh, I think it's, I think it's very insightful and very tongue in cheek <laughs> all at the same time. Yeah. I'm going to use that now. That's, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it just has. I think that if you can make the subject matter approachable and digestible and ground it in that applicability, 
maybe it's maybe it's I've got rose colored glasses on, but I don't think that you could uh, fail to convince anyone that it is a fascinating area to practice in. Whether or not people would ultimately decide to go into it is a different question, but at the very least, they would have an appreciation for it. And as you know, right, it does touch every aspect of our of our lives, right? It's how we interpret the world. It's how our sensory inputs come into us. Everything that that comes or goes from our brain, our mind uh, is via the nervous system. So it, it is inherently essential to our lived experience. And you know, there are people walking around out there with very superficial understandings of that, where they just kind of treat it like a black box. And they're kind of scared whenever anything goes wrong with it, which you know, obviously can be serious. But knowing like, well, this is the complaint. I know how to frame that out and think about like, these are the things I need to start investigating, right? You interrogate the, you know, a little knowledge of neuroanatomy is like, these are the adjacent structures that we're talking about, like brainstem lesions or, you know, different cortical functions, things like that. And so you can map it out and, it, you know, it's all there if you look for it. Um, right. It just comes back to that being observance and knowing what to look for. And, you know, neurology, I think is cursed a little bit with incredibly long clinical signs. Uh, I think one that every medical student has to learn is dysdiadocokinesia, just kind of like this, this impaired coordination and rapid alternating movements. Right. Uh, I guess I'm, I'm biased, right. My, my minor was in Greek in undergrad. So I have a little bit of a leg up, I suppose. So, you know, well, that's only half. The other half is Latin. So, um, but I think Putting the the goofy names and the uh, you know the pedantic nature of neurologists at large to the side, I think it's a very fascinating specialty that uh, that most people would in clinical practice would benefit from learning more about. Yeah, I I uh, I made the mistake. I, I thought at, like right out of undergrad, I thought, okay, if I just learn some Latin, then <laughs> my life in graduate school will be much easier. And then I started, and then I realized it's you know half Latin, half Greek, and so then I gave up because that's too much. But Anyways, uh, yeah, that, that's a tangent. You know, it, it's it's uh, back to what you were saying. It's it's fascinating because yeah. you know I, I've always said that when if you ask a neurologist when someone officially dies, it's when the brain stops. When you ask a cardiologist, it's when the heart stops. And when you ask a pulmonologist, it's when they stop breathing. You know, yeah. and uh, and and certainly, you know, I I also too um, express the 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 bias towards the neuro, right? Because I'm in the field, so I I, I share the same view as you do, but. Um, you know, it's with that, with, with the, um, I guess with the ever expanding knowledge base that is making up medicine and, and especially with the fact that the, the amount of time in medical school doesn't change, it's still four years and, you know, we're just expanding the amount of content that has to be pushed into that four years, um, which is something that's always kind of fascinated me a little bit, but, but with that, do you see like, let's say you're talking about capturing the uh, interests of students early to get them interested in so they can actually have a, a pretty deep understanding of a field as they start to go into their clerkships and, and sort of start to pick different specialties. Do you see with the advent of there being so much information now being packed in that students are, are somewhat having to pick specialties earlier in order to focus because of the amount of information that needs to be uh, understood about a specific specialty as it's, you know, sort of growing. Yeah. I, I don't think I've witnessed that myself. Um, 
What I always tell medical students is that if they expected you to already know everything about neurology when you applied to a neurology residency, what would be the point of doing the residency? <laughs> and uh, you know, I I can be a bit uh, I don't uh, glib, I guess you would say. Uh, as far as that goes, where it's like, well, if you already know all this stuff, then what's the point? Like, what do, what do we have to teach you? Um, and I think that would, you know, apply to most other specialties as well. Um, that that is how I would perceive it, at least. Is I think it's good to to get a flavor, right? Because a, a lot of these things, if you're doing a especially rotation in something like, say, you know, rheumatology or you know, ENT or what have you, some you know, surgical subspecialty then you're only seen regardless of like, you know, how busy that one month is. That's just a little snapshot in time. There's in every specialty, just a, a number of ways that people structure their practices, subspecialties upon subspecialties. Um, so I think that there is a lot of, of that, that you never really see unless you go into the field, regardless of what that field may be. And so I think we're all cursed a little bit um, by knowing that there's all these things that we don't know. So to an extent, it does make you, you know, question like, well, I think this is the best way to go, but uh, you know, I'm not the, the specialist in the area. So sometimes you wind up maybe referring a little bit more than you would like to or getting second and third opinions. Even in my own specialty, you know, if I have someone with a, a challenging movement disorder or uh, a kind of an unusual dementia presentation, I'll certainly reach out to colleagues and you know get them in for a referral and a second opinion and make sure that person's getting the, the appropriate testing that we're not missing something else. So I think that that's again right ties back to that humility of knowing knowing what you know uh, knowing what you don't know. I always like to uh, to quote Dirty Harry, uh, you know a man a man has to know his limitations. So I think that's, that's a very important thing in life, uh, but especially in the practice of medicine where you are uh, taking care of other people and providing recommendations. And very often, right, they wouldn't, it's a, a very esoteric field when you get into the weeds and they wouldn't know if your recommendations are, are bunk or not. So I think it's important to be honest when you're like, I'm not sure what this is, but here's a list of things that I think it could be. And we're going to do some testing and see if we can get you an answer. Um, and I mean, even when you get into that, uh, I was one of the things, right. I always say, uh, you know, about, about 20%, like for neuropathy, right. 20% of cases are idiopathic, which is just, uh, you know, doctor talk for, we don't know what it is. Um, yeah. but, uh, it is one of those things where sometimes you have to be comfortable with not knowing that there may not be a definite answer and that for both the person who's having the symptoms as well as you as their physician can be incredibly frustrating. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I think knowing what you don't know, I think that, like I said, being in the ICU and for, for that stint and then also doing rounds every week, I think it was from a, from a scientific perspective or from a scientist perspective, I think having that clinical exposure was one of the most transformative things when it came to, making translational research grants about making treatments of, you know, uh, let's say a patient was coding or something in the ICU and the, the <laughs> attending is, is, you know, you're moving quick and it's like patients coding, what do you give them now? Like there's right. no, there's, there was not a time of, 
okay, you know, and then, and then all the, the scientists in the room, mm-hmm. they say, okay, patient's coding, what do we give them? And they go, well, let's think about the background. And you go, <laughs> you go not, no, no time for this. <laughs> right. You have to give it now. Um, and it, it very much like transformed a lot of the way that I thought about creating uh, treatments, especially for ours with the, with the fentanyl overdose, uh, you know, especially <laughs> is, is that, you know, if you're going to create some sort of adjunct therapy or some sort of new therapy, then you're dealing with something that you can't have these very intricate balances of like, you need something that's able to give in and give now and it's going to reverse it and boom, done. Like, yeah. And so there was, you know, a lot of these treatments that we're doing that sort of slowly changed the excitability state of the networks and it rebalanced right. things. And it was like, that's not that that's, that's cool. That's great yeah. for us to understand hmm. circuit mechanisms. But if you try to market that as uh, you know, for grantsmanship, try to market that as a, a treatment strategy. It just gets killed right away. And yeah. I think that's where like having that sort of scientist physician interplay has been, has been fun. And, you know, I, I often laughed, I put together a grant one time and, um, I had as my, you know, you have to have your sort of committee of, of members on there and they were, they were all either anesthesiologists or pulmonary critical care docs. And I was the only scientist that was on. And, you know, so I wrote the whole grant and it was about this new innovative treatment strategy and, and all that kind of stuff. And I sent it out and all of them came back and they said, this is cool, but uh, there's, I, there's no way that anyone on the face of this earth is ever going to use that as a treatment. Well, and <laughs> I thought, well, that's a good thing. I sent it to you guys first. <laughs> so that's some brutally honest feedback. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it was great. You know, I, I, I did appreciate the, the, uh, the attending feedback of yeah. the way that it is, you know, it might be considered harsh by some, but it saved so much time because yeah. then there was no questions of, of anything. It was, it was, it was perfect. It's funny. You mentioned that, right? Cause it's like, even, even if with like, well, well-established therapies, right? Like, um, like benzodiazepines as rescue medications for seizures. I remember one of my child neurology attendings telling me, you know, for a while they had these auto injectors. Um, but the problem was, is that people kept grabbing them by the wrong end. And so they would go to inject the, you know, their, their child or loved one who was having a seizure and they would inject themselves with like, you know, lorazepam or, oh no, right. It's like, that is just the worst possible outcome. Uh, So it's one of these things where it's like, you know, we got these grand ideas, but when we get it into the hands of the general public, what's going to happen? Uh, And to your point, right. It it is like, you can never predict how people are going to use things. Um, but just assume that if they do it wrong, what's the worst possible outcome, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. They get a, they get, a, yeah, that's, now you have to test not only the, you know, a healthy right. population with the drug and as well as the, the sick population, because you have to the test the, uh, right. the injectors. Right. That's interesting. Uh, so, so with the, you know, with the, with the education of it and getting people interested early and, you know, working that in, what are, what are some of the ways that, you can increase the outreach and to, to highlight sort of interest in the field. Obviously you're doing your, your podcast. Um, and I've seen through this podcast, the amount of interest that is there and just doesn't know exactly what resources are available or anything like that. What, what, what kind of things do you look at or, or think about in, in order to, to get that? So, yeah. And I think you probably experienced this as well, right? There is this conflation between, you know, neuroscience, psychology, neurology, um, all these brain-related fields. Um, like I know I've been asked to come on and talk about uh, like some people's podcasts about 
uh, like ADHD or things like that. I'm like, I mean, I could talk a little bit about it, but I'm probably not like the subject expert that you want me to be uh, in as much as like, you know, getting down to the basic science and talking about like practice, right? Because you know, I don't treat that in my day-to-day practice generally. I, I'll, you know, have patients in conjunction with a psychiatrist. So... Yeah, so I get a lot on like psychedelic yeah. trips and like yes. and I, I say, Hey, look, like I study action potentials. I <laughs> Right. I'm not the right, right person here. And like one of my friends from residency, um, you know, he he's he studies action potentials as well, but he specifically studies spinal cord action potentials, right? <laughs> so it's like, what kind of action potentials? Are they cortical, peripheral, <laughs> somewhere in between? Uh and it right, it becomes one of these things where you know, uh there are people out there. I think there is a podcast actually about about psychedelics. Uh, oh, there's probably listen. hundreds of them. No. <laughs> yeah, God, I think I've listened to one or two episodes. I can't remember the name at the moment, but um, but yeah, it's, it is one of those things where there's all this conflation. So I would say clinical neurology. There are a number of podcasts out there. Um, one that I enjoy is uh, Clinical Problem Solvers. And they have uh, what they call virtual morning reports that you can sign up if you're like a medical student or something like that. You can sign up with your email. And uh, once a week, they usually do a neurology uh, virtual case presentation. There is uh, a podcast out from Yale as well um, that uh, that goes, and this is more for board review for neurology residents. So and that's, that's the problem, right? There's a lot of stuff aimed more at that advanced medical trainee to attending neurologists like the American Academy of Neurology and then all these neurology subspecialty things like the strokes, you know, stroke vascular interventional um, or SFIN, uh, the Movement Disorder Society, the Alzheimer's Society, right? They all have their podcasts. They're all very niche as far as the the topics they go. And so I like to think I'm focused more at that, that entry level uh population there or the the non-neurologist is how i like to think of it or the yet to be if you'd rather the large end of the funnel yeah yes yes so top of funnel uh to use some marketing terms but um but yeah if we can capture the interest of those people so that i've been kind of focused more on like talking with people who who have interesting stories of their own especially medical professionals who have gone through different neurologic events or things like that uh, which have been very fascinating, you know, kind of getting that, you know, uh, physician as patient perspective. Uh, certainly, I've learned a lot from from those kinds of conversations, and then kind of the basic anatomy and things like that, and how do we clinically evaluate that? Um, in terms of other resources, there's a few textbooks. I mentioned the one from uh, Dr. Ethan Meltzer, um, the the same guy who does the clinical problem solvers, Dr. Aaron Berkowitz, has a great text. I think one of the best. Uh, entry-level kind of clinical neurology textbooks, which is clinical neurology and neuroanatomy, um, which is, you know, a lot of textbooks kind of have this uh, dry voice to them, if you will. I think he keeps his writing very lively, uh, you know, for a neurology textbook. And uh, That's I actually what I, used I, to, yeah. I often said, yeah. and the reason that I have Guyton and Hall's textbook of medical yeah, physiology yeah. behind me was that it was the the first book where I read that it was like a textbook that was no. sort of intense mechanisms but it was written in an entertaining fashion and it changed yeah. my view on how science was done. I can't say that I've read Guyton Hall cover to cover, but uh, there's definitely like here and there you'll catch like some little snide remarks once in a yeah. while. 
<laughs> and uh, I I appreciate that. It's good to know this was written by a human being and not a robot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, that was uh, also yeah. uh, I I laughed because my uh, when I did my uh, graduate work, my mentor was I think he was like seventy eight when I started, so he was you know a classical physiologist. Season. Yeah, a seasoned physiologist, classical yes. physiologist, if you will. He loved shifting curves, you know. Uh, and and I asked a question about something about the brain or whatever, because we had sort of viewed the brain <laughs> well, as a the yeah <laughs> somewhere uh, somewhere up north of the, of the brainstem, and and uh, he had he, you know he he said, well, there's a book that you could read that that should answer your question, whatever. It's a relatively quick read, and he dropped off on my desk, Principles of Neuroscience by Kendall, and you know it's a thousand page textbook, if not right. more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's that was, that's great. You gotta you gotta appreciate that dry sense of humor there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So when so the last thing I, I did want to to ask about was and, and to bring back sort of the mixture of the education, the actual research, and implementing it, and a lot of it has to do with sort of how we go forward in innovating training, and and not only that, but with your experience within the clinic is in. Uh, applying some of the new innovations that are coming through in neuroscience. Obviously, a lot of the technology is coming out faster than clinical trials can even fathom to be done. Um, and so how do you sort of mix, you know, where do you see some of the new innovations going that are kind of cool on your end, but yet at the same time, safely implementing them into the clinic where perhaps experimental paradigms may not be as readily accessible? I think that's yeah, that's a, a very multi-layered question. Yeah, that, that's so deep. I I think from the from the education side of things, one thing that I regret not learning better in medical school uh, that that made me I had to play catch up down the road was when we get these you know we get a, a journal article, how do we actually interpret? Like, is this a good study? Is this a bad study? You know, mm. is this a witch or a bad witch? Uh, but. Uh, <laughs> Like doing, like learning the basics of statistical, right? I never took stats in undergrad. Um, so, you know, had to kind of muddle my way through with like, you know, learning about clinical significance and, you know, very, I wouldn't say I'm still particularly strong at uh, stats in general, but learning about study design, learning about statistical analysis and interpretation, I think that would be. A, a valuable skill for medical schools to implement. I know some do, but more broadly speaking, I think it would be very, very useful. And even into residency, I think uh, the emphasis in journal clubs is more on the specific content of the article a lot of times rather than the broad uh, statistical and method analysis, which, you know, let's be honest, right? Uh, you got a bunch of tired residents. Do they, worry, <laughs> do they really want to talk about statistical analysis and methods and all that kind of stuff. Not yeah. usually, but it wasn't really until my fellowship where, you know, I'd look through and be like, and that is the one thing, uh, you know, this is if any uh, medical students or residents are listening, uh, a quick cheat code for your journal club presentation is to just disagree with everything in there and just rip everything apart. And, you know, almost nobody is going to disagree with you. <laughs> um so if you take the the antagonistic position to the journal article that you're presenting, that will yeah. save you a lot of grief from the attendants down the road. <laughs> but um, 
It was like, I think this paper was garbage and let me tell you why. Yeah. And they'll love you for uh, it. Right. Uh, it's certainly more interesting. Uh, but, but I think that's kind of an educational piece. As far as the implementation piece, I think, you know, we still, before we kind of broadly start implementing uh, different treatments, it is important to look at uh, kind of what is the what is the risk benefit analysis for for these, and I think the the case that would be kind of front of mind in the last year or two is is all of these anti amyloid therapies like uh, uh, lecanemab and and the uh, other similars, in as much as you know we're looking mostly at radiologic outcomes in some of these you know amyloid regression, but there's also reduction in brain volumes and there's not really a significant uh, clinical improvement in these patients, right? You're slowing the decline by a pretty marginal amount. And then you look at the risk of side effects, uh, right? You get like brain swelling uh, in like between 15, 20% of people. And you have to get serial MRIs. And then you start looking at like, hey, this is going to cost like $50,000 a year per patient. And you're just like, is this really sustainable from a population standpoint? Uh, when we don't really know if it's specifically beneficial, and if it is beneficial, well, how long do we keep people on it? Right? I, it's the you, uh, it's, it's the cisternal yeah. tetraethylammonium for opioid overdose. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's yeah, it works, but, um, but it's not gonna right. <laughs> and so you wonder, right? Is this therapy actually beneficial? Like, am I benefiting my patients by prescribing it? And there are some prominent people in the you know kind of the cognitive neurology sphere who are saying like. I don't know if it's ready for prime time, but it is FDA approved, right? Uh, which is certainly not the end all be all of whether or not it's good, but it's uh, it's getting released out of the wild. And so now we have to figure out what do we do with it? Um, you know, because people are going to ask like, hey, I'm, I have a strong family history of Alzheimer's disease. Should I be on this medication? And you're like, well, you know, here's the test that we would have to write because you have to get like a lumbar puncture and like check for or amyloid and tau and or a brain PET scan, which you know a lot of times insurance may or may not cover, right? Insurance coverage for a lot of these new medications also very questionable. So it becomes more of a society level problem where we're now we're investing all these healthcare dollars and we're not sure are these healthcare dollars well spent in as much as improving things, whether that's from an individual or systemic level. And I think uh, that is that is why we need very robust data for a lot of these um, different neurodegenerative neurodegenerative conditions. Specifically, I would say, uh, kind of the you know Alzheimer's, obviously the most common cause of dementia in the country. And you know, once we get over the age of seventy-five, it's something like one in ten might have some mild cognitive impairment. Over the age of eighty, eighty-five, like one in four. And so, right, it's it's coming for all of us if you live long enough, but. Uh, is that the way to go, right? There's some people who call the entire amyloid theory of Alzheimer's into question, which I know is a bit of a hot take uh, in some circles. Oh, it gets so, heated in, the, in yeah. the meetings. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. And right, because there's people who have built their entire careers around this. Like we're talking 30 plus years of work. And now someone's coming along and say, like, hey, by the way, all your all your stuff is bunk. Uh, <laughs> so there's there's definitely an emotional investment. And there's been significant resource from just like, you know, grants and research funding and all these things for years and years and years. So like we're now we're saying like, is this a payoff? Is this not? I don't know. 
smarter people than me are probably going to be looking into it, but uh, it's certainly one where I don't think the dust has settled just yet. Yeah, that's uh, what I learned very quickly, especially with the grant process and stuff, was that mm -hmm. unless it's a very solid phenotype that you're investigating, be careful because you're going to go down a rabbit hole that you, oh, yeah, you're going right. to sort of corner yourself into being the world expert on something that may or may not occur in all, you know, preparations and things like that. Yeah. And now, now what do you do? Yeah. So yes, yes. Yeah. That would be, uh, challenging. Let's just say challenging. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that was, uh, and that was that was actually what I did with the opioids. I originally started and we gave it and we saw all this variability in how it suppressed breathing. And I thought, wow, I'm trying to find a single mechanism that leads to this is going to lead me into a lot of pain. And so instead of that, we focused in on the, the variability. And so, I'm, you know, why is one more sensitive than others and how can we shift the state? And that became a lot more fruitful than trying to figure out a single mechanism that accounted for 300% variation. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But anyway, so, so, yeah, you, yeah. so you got, yeah, so, so we got the, the education, we got all this, uh, you know, the implementing stuff, you're on the social front, you're doing a lot with the, the neurotransmitters, that's your, nope. your podcast. Yes, yes, you can find me on all your podcast networks. <laughs> <laughs> so I said the neurotransmitters, is there anything else, any other uh, plugs or anything going on? Yeah, uh, I mean, you can, so yeah. we also have our website, <laughs> theneurotransmitters.com, uh, I don't know how you got that. That's impressive. You know, it's the the. That's that's what did it. Oh. But um, yeah, neurotransmitters was taken. So it's the neurotransmitters.com. Uh, you can email us there. You can, uh, you know, we got some little quizzes you can take on there. You can also find me on X, formerly Twitter, at uh, Dr. Kentris, Dr. Kentris, K-E-N-T-R-I-S. And uh, you can always shoot me a message. Uh, my DMs are open. And uh, yeah. Uh, reach out for uh, any clinical neurology type questions you might have. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it so much that you uh, took the time to come on here, especially taking time out. You're out at a conference, which is makes it even more challenging to attend things. So I, <laughs> well, I apologize I for any uh, background noise from people shouting in the hallway at the hotel here. No, no, you couldn't hear it all. I, I'm impressed with the internet connection at the hotel. So <laughs> I am too. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. All right. So for the, the neural network, www.theneuronetwork.org, you know, we couldn't get the .com even with the, the but, uh, and on any, uh, podcast player, but you already found it if you've listened to this episode. So with that, thank you again for coming on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.